This is a presentation of Patterson Media. Corner stores. They're where we go late at night for milk, or to leave a key for a friend, or where we let our kids visit on their own. Yes, small neighborhood groceries are practical, but they are also somehow magical. And during the pandemic, it became abundantly clear just how important they are to our communities. This episode of Amplify Canada celebrates the neighborhood store in three parts. Part one, about a community that saved their corner store during the pandemic. Part two, an owner who has transformed a traditional corner store into a work of art. And part three, the heartwarming story of a store that started by offering five-month-old Italian newspapers and became the largest distributor of Italian food in Western Canada. We thought we'd start today where the idea of a podcast about corner stores began for us, by reminiscing. Here's Jen. I grew up in Toronto in the projects called Jamestown. We didn't really have a corner store close, but we had a tuck shop run by a gentleman that would supply milk, bread, copious amounts of candy, and cigarettes. We often hear of the corner store, the owner sometimes would give kids, you know, cigarettes underage and things like that. Did Bill ever fall into that category or was he above all that? He just would do what was right. Actually, at that age, we all wanted to try alcohol. And he said, no, you know, you can't do that. He says, but I'll tell you what, if your parents give you permission, I'm not going to let you try alcohol, but I'll let you try a cigarette because at least you'll be under adult supervision. So we thought, oh my God, Bill's all so cool. So we ran back and we all talked to our parents and we all tried a cigarette at Bill's and we hated it. And that was his point. He said, see kids, like why bother? It's gross. Now you got it out of your system. Let's move on. What kind of candy do you want? I remember Klein's grocery store, which was a tiny little place where they had barrels of dill pickles and they made the best cherry Coke in the world. And I fell in love every time I walked into that store with another girl from school. And they never had anything to do with me. And Mr. Klein was always nice. Don lives on Bowen Island. Today, in my neighborhood, so in Vancouver, a corner store was developed into a corner store slash cafe. And they serve coffee and French pastry, but they also have milk and cheese and bread and pasta and food that families would would want for a quick run to the corner store. No cigarettes, none of that, just all healthy food. It's owned by a family. And um, the neighbor tried to close down this corner store because too many people gathered. Too many people sat outside and laughed. Too many people sat outside and had long conversations into the night. And so the neighbor says, I don't like this. And she petitioned to the city to shut it down and found a loophole in effectively the zoning, which meant that because they didn't sell cigarettes, that they're technically not a corner store. So absolutely true story. And the city was going to shut down La Marche Saint-Georges within 30 days. 
as a community, I'll be honest, we were enraged. We were like, this is not okay. We don't accept this. So I created a stakeholder group, a community group on Facebook. We got, are you ready for this? 3,000 signatures in four and a half days. And this store exists there today. And the gentleman who owns it, uh, his name is Pascal. He has a tattoo, only one, that says, Merci. And he shows that to everybody saying, I'm thanking the community for saving this store. There's a similar story to Jen's, just a ferry ride away in Nanaimo, a port city of 90,000. It's about a neighborhood grocery store on the corner of Albert and Milton Streets. Superette Foods, part one. Located in a quaint small house, the Superette has an apartment upstairs, commercial space on the ground floor, and a crawl space underneath. White wooden clapboard with red trim covers the exterior. A fruit and vegetable stand sits on the sidewalk. It was built in 1903. At the beginning of COVID, we got really busy. A lot of the bigger stores couldn't meet the demands for people that were in quarantine. And I was getting deliveries out like as fast as they were coming in. People really appreciated that. Sherry Sorensen manages Superette Foods. And then a few months in, we just kind of slowed right down. I'm, I don't really know what happened. I think it was around September, October last year. Gary and I wrote a letter and we posted it on our Facebook page just saying, hey, um, like we're kind of struggling. Gary Negrin owns the Superette. We'll get to his story soon. This slowdown in business was experienced by many small groceries. People were again going out to restaurants. I had seen their post on Facebook that business just wasn't great and they were really asking for help from the community. I think there was something like 300 people that responded with this place was the only place that my mom could afford as a single mom to feed us when we were young. Or when I was in university, it was the only place that I could get nutritious food. So as I was reading these stories, this sort of collection of things that meant so much to different people, I thought, well, this is something that needs to stay as a cornerstone of what makes communities communities. I realized that I didn't necessarily have the buying power to make their business last or stay, but I knew I had the ability to create a community of people to potentially increase awareness or engagement of who was going to shop there. Megan Hamlet is a neighbor and customer. Part of her work is technology related to engagement. And I'll be honest, like, when I came into it, it wasn't like, oh, like I'll just take my genius and like put it over here. That wasn't what that was. It was like, let's create a place where people can share all of their recipes. Like maybe this can just be like, oh, well, we can share that I spent $4 on a meal, but like, look how amazing it is. Maybe we're hipsters. Maybe we love a good coupon or a deal. Maybe we love to save food from going in the bin. There's that kind of Gen Z, millennial, Gen X, let's do cool stuff with the leftovers that nobody wants, right? And so I thought it was just going to be this cool thing. We were all just going to impress 
each other with how cool we were. But, but as it started to grow, I was like, oh, there's this seven-year-old woman that's been going there for 40 years, and she's going to share how she loves cheeses and sh shares that cheese with her dog. Like, we were teaching older community members how to upload photos. You know, like a single senior uploading pictures of her dinner to her group of people. And she's got these 20-year-old, like, punk rockers being like, that's amazing, Carol. In no time at all, the page had 2,000 followers. So people could go on this Facebook page and post their quote-unquote haul of what they got here. And this is what I got for this little bit. And this is what I made from the, the deal that I got there. And that just blew up from, like, Megan Hamlet. She started up a Facebook page. That was actually... I think that's probably what, at the end of the day, saved the store. Sherry, did that cause you to be overwhelmed by customers? We are a small store with one till, and most people will just stand outside and wait their turn to come in. And they kind of chat with the people in line in front of them or behind them and make new friends. It's, it's cool to watch. But the thing is, the neighborhood wouldn't have rallied if they didn't already love this store. A lot of the store's spirit comes from Gary Nagrin who with his brother took over the store's management in 1976. My brother and I, we followed through with our plan. About three or four years down the road, I said to my brother, I said, Dave, I says, it's about time that maybe we split. And, you know, if you want the store, you keep the store. We came up with an agreement. It was one of those agreements that if he didn't like it, I'd have to take it. So I... Uh, ended up having to take the store and buy him up. So I started from scratch again in about 1980. Gary was 25. Now semi-retired, he's owned the store for over 40 years. He remembers working from 7 a.m. when he visited the wholesaler to 9 p.m., six days a week. But my wife at the time forbid me to work on Sundays, so I got Sunday off. So at what point did you stop working so much? Well... Over the years, it sort of consumes you. It's not that you can relax. So it, it never really did slow down that much until, when was it? I basically gave uh, the store, store to Sherry to look after. What year was that, Sherry? What year did I um, basically hand the store runnings to you? Sherry Sorensen is helping a customer. She comes over. I came in 1996. I was friends with Gary before I started working here, and he was looking for help to get through a period, and I said, oh, I'll help. I was going to school, and I'd never done this kind of work before. And here I am 20-plus years later. I started as cashier, and then I started working in the produce department, and now I, I manage the store fully and help out in the meat department. When I started working here, my kids were four and six. I was a single parent, so Gary was gracious enough to let me have the kids come here. If I had to work past daycare hours, and he put a TV in the office, and he built a basketball hoop out back so that they could be entertained while I was working. Um, and that, again, is a huge, like, this store is a huge part of my kids' lives, too. Yeah, yeah, I watched your kids grow up right from, I think, Jelly Bean was about uh, four years old, I think. Chris was about six. They were tremendous kids. Just tremendous kids. Yeah. So he's created 
a pretty amazing work environment and environment for our customers and everything. It's incredible. He's a big man with a huge heart. Big heart and big fun when it comes to Gary's Superette. This is before Sherry. Okay. All the staff were outside with placards saying they're on strike and, and oh they, they they had me. They had me. I didn't I didn't even realize it was April Fool's Day, but they got me. So anyway, I got one of them back later on the next year of April Fool's. My meat cutter, Spud Morelli, he was part-time meat cutter and he was a part-time lawn maintenance and doing sprinklers and this type of thing. He loved that kind of work. Well, anyways, his old truck gave out and he, he bought another one, a fairly nice shape, older but fairly nice shape trucking. So it's sitting in the parking lot. This is April Fool's Day. So I goes over and I make a sign and I put it on the windshield. I says, for sale, $50, OBO, apply at the meat counter, okay? So anyways, <laughs> the, the customer comes in and says, look, he says, I'll take the truck for $50, but you have to throw in the shovel and the rake in the back. And Spud says, what the hell are you talking about? What are you talking about? And he, he says, well, there's a sign on your truck. He says, who the hell would do that? Oh, he, he got mad. He got really mad. But he calmed down later. The store felt like one big family that extended into the neighborhood. Gary's had for a long time was charge accounts, and we're kind of getting away from that. But we do have a fund in the store. It started a few years ago with a guy that donated a, a lump sum, and he's done it every year since, about, I don't know, four or five years. And if people are short, we use the Helping Hands Fund to help them out. Since the pandemic hit, more and more people have been donating to it. It's helped a lot of people. Megan's Facebook page for the store, which has now reached 3,000 followers, also helps out. It continues to evolve from members giving away gift certificates, members giving away things that they may do as artisans or as micro-entrepreneurs. And we've also contributed to the community fund. They are our neighborhood, our community. They look out for us and we look out for them. Like we're always here to lend a hand and they're there for us as much as we are for them. It's pretty amazing. Neighborhood groceries characteristically create community. Andy Yan, the director of the city program at Simon Fraser University, explains. I think that corner stores have always been the original social network, that they are one of the kind of physical places through which people get to encounter each other as well as purchase the odd sundry items that you may have run out of, that it's just down the street as opposed to a long trek or drive over to a chain grocery store. Actually, one of the young girls that works here now, she grew up in the neighborhood and had a family of her own, moved away, came back and was looking for work. I just remember when I started here, she was just this little girl. And we've seen, I've seen a lot of the neighborhood kids grow up and have families of their own. Gary, when did you fall in love with your store? You know, that was early on, falling in love with the store. The, The demographics in the area have changed over the years. When we first took over the store, a lot of elderly, retired people that lived in the area in here since the turn of the century. So that was awesome. We had charge accounts and all kinds of things like that. So 
it was um, different. And then, of course, all the elderly died off and moved into homes or whatever. So their demographics went from the elderly secure to uh, rentals and transients. That was uh, a few years of um, turmoil, we, we might say. We learned pretty quick you couldn't give charge accounts to transients because they're here today and gone tomorrow. Gradually now, over the course of the last, say, 20 years or so, uh, a lot of young families have moved into the neighborhood, taken over these older homes and fixing them up, and it's wonderful to see. Wonderful. And they give us such tremendous support. We can't thank them enough because if it wasn't for them, we wouldn't be here. Honest. See, we're not really a corner store. We may be a store on a corner, but we're not a corner store. We pretty much have everything that a regular grocery store has, but maybe less selection. But we've got, you know, full line of meats, produce, dairy. So it's, we've had to change gears over the years. Now we're sort of a specialty discount store. Wait's General Store. Yep, hold on. Tommy, it's your mom. That children's book image of the corner store is something we want to hold on to, but it's morphed over time. The life and times of a grocery store has certainly significantly changed over the last hundred years. You'll see the proliferation of grocery stores throughout a lot of urban neighborhoods in Canada. And a lot of that reflects the kind of changing domestic needs as the baby boom occurs after the Second World War. But then also, I think the kind of changing um Demographics, as we see that a lot of these stores are also small entrepreneurial mom and pops, that the various immigrant groups, as they come across in numerous waves, that really find their first entrepreneurial enterprises occur with these small grocery stores. I think that part of this is going to certainly not be that cute grocery store of decades past, but then I think it's going to change and it's going to evolve. And I think that that's healthy. But yet, I think at the same time, it's also touching upon the message to city halls of really being very careful and uh, acknowledging the role of these details within neighborhoods and how they do make neighborhoods in terms of one commercial retail function. I think to a certain degree, they're the counter towards the Amazon and Amazon Go type of elements of where things are going. Just a reminder that these stories came to us from Patterson Media's Amplify Canada project, from someone who loved the Superette and nominated it for Amplify Canada. Part 2. The Remake Down Island from Nanaimo, in BC's capital city, Victoria, is the Market Garden Grocery on Catherine and Bella Streets. The simple white and faded blue storefront looks slightly run down. A mural on the building's side is chipping. Near the entrance, an old-style payphone is attached to the exterior wall. 
Red letters spell out Oceanic Market, the Market Garden's old name. All to say, you can't judge a book by its cover. It doesn't look like much on the outside, but you step in and it's like stepping into, you know, a different world. People are very shocked when they come for the first time because they do not expect to see, you know, chandeliers hanging from the ceilings and grand piano and beautiful architecture. Ryan, I know you're there now. Can you describe the inside of the store? Yeah, so when you come into the store, you come into what we call the chocolate bar. And it's basically a showcase of craft chocolate bars from all over the world. Uh, can I grab you anything? Yeah, sure, in a minute. Uh, I'm just looking. Sure. Thank you. Yeah, just let me know. You'd expect aisles in a grocery store. We've basically created rooms. So we'll have the product kind of showcased in themes per different rooms. Where you basically have a table in the center, a giant chandelier hanging from the ceiling, shelves that stretch to the ceiling. Our first main room was inspired by a ceiling in the long hall of Chastleton House in England. And it's a long barrel vault ceiling with a Jacobean sort of pattern. That was one of the kind of first features we installed into the space. And instead of people walking into the old store, they stumbled into what was a different world, where the walls were tiled, inlaid with black marble, decorative plaster friezes, constellation on the ceiling. People would literally come in, especially customers who, you know, were kind of, weren't here for our store, would come in, kind of look, and then they'd go back outside, look at the sign, like, where am I? Like, how did this happen? Ryan Townsend, the owner, wanted his corner store to look like Harrods in London. This is so unusual, Ryan. How did it happen? Maybe 17 years now, 16. I ended up moving here with almost nothing. The first place I found to rent was this old apartment in this sort of rundown 1905 house. And at that time, I wasn't working great jobs, but I really wanted to make that like my home. So I decided I want to get my apartment into a magazine, which is kind of a weird goal. So I started renovating it and the landlord kind of let me do whatever I wanted. So I ripped out the carpet, redid the floors, I built like tiles in the floor in the kitchen, tile backsplashes. Anyway, so I ended up landing it into Canadian House and Home magazine. It was basically a national design contest and I won for best small space. That story ended up running in almost every newspaper in Canada from Nova Scotia to Montreal to Toronto. From that, I was really able to gain my first clients, which initially spurred my sort of career. And I think the local corner store owner read about me in the newspaper and also, you know, I came into the store to shop. So I think that's kind of what broke the ice of him saying, hey, do you need a workshop? Business at the corner store had declined over the years and there was extra space in the back. Ryan moved in with his workshop and made custom pieces for people across Canada. And it came with a backyard. So I started growing vegetables and people started coming and wanting to buy them because I was able to grow a tremendous amount the first year. And so then I thought there might be an opportunity for a business. So I actually started a little seed company, which we literally ran out of basically a garden shed in the back. But what I found really sold well was the produce. So I approached the owner of the store and asked him if he would ever sell me the business. And we came up with an agreement and I ended up becoming a grocer. 
When Ryan took over the store, it was like most convenience stores, with the usual staples. Cigarettes, lottery tickets, chips, candy and sodas. All very nostalgic, but maybe not so healthy. Ryan didn't have the money needed to buy the inventory. So the owner was kind enough to actually finance, you know, the balance of the inventory over the following year. We never closed it. It literally opened up and we had to sell, you know, cigarettes. And we immediately got rid of Lotto because it just in no way made sense. But we slowly had started transforming the store. The store is 4,000 square feet, but Ryan took it down to 1,200. So at the time, Ryan, what was the clientele like? It was very much like two worlds colliding because we were specializing in organic produce, local products, artisan goods, fine Italian imports. But then on the other hand, we have the people who are coming in for Coca-Cola and cigarettes. You have enough? Okay. Well, thank you. After four years and six months, Ryan has replaced all the old items and totally transformed the old corner store, except the exterior. Today, adaptability is important for survival, as Andy Yan explains. How dynamic being a grocery store needs to be, that it's not only selling milk and butter one decade, but then it's really touching the opportunity to sell wine and coffee on the other and prepared foods. And I think that similarly requires that type of flexibility in terms of our uh, regulatory zoning regimes, as well as approaches on business. So I think that that really touches upon the importance of having that type of flexibility within the idea of how grocery stores need to, how any business needs to change over time. But it served a very small niche of the community. We serve a much broader spectrum of the community. Everything the previous owner sold was available just down the street. There was lots of places to get it. There was nothing unique or special about the product. We brought in something that was completely different. Then when people did come in to use a store like a convenience store, you want your basic salad dressing, but we don't have craft. We have these artisanal products. It sort of forced people to try new things because there was no other option on the shelf, which really worked out well because once people try it, then they're like, wow, this is really good. Hi. Hello. How are you doing? Good. How are you? I'm from Oregon. I'm just oh. touching okay? I, you might want to take a look around. I'm not sure. Um, yeah, perfect. Thank you so much. I would say... Uh, 60 to 70% of customers probably walk to the store. We have no parking lot. It's literally street parking. But we also, we do attract people from all over the place, all over the city, um, up and down the island. Last year at Christmas, we created an entire room of chocolate, which many customers have told me is the happiest room in Victoria. In the middle of that area, we have a grand piano. On Saturdays and Sundays from two till four, we actually have someone come in and play the piano. And that was one neat feature through the pandemic was the fact that there was no live music, except for at the store, where every weekend you could come in and there would be someone playing the piano. And it's, it's quite because it echoes throughout the entire store. The grocery store is like an art installation. It's the most unexpected place you got to break the norm and everything about this store is not what you would expect. I'm constantly 
designing. And when staff see me walking around with my tape measure, they get nervous. Because he's like, what's he going to do now? <laughs> a very important element of our store is to have that constant change and that creativity. And that's probably, for me, the best part of the business is the fact you're bringing a lot of happiness to a lot of people. And I really like that. Let's face it, Canada is built on the immigrant hustle. And I think that based upon that fundamental understanding of how immigrant hustle has helped build this country, that grocery stores are a part of that history. That's definitely the case with our next story. Another store nominated for Patterson Media's Amplify Canada. Part three, the roots a family provides. When I was first born, we lived literally in the store. Like the back room was our bedroom and we had a small kitchen. And so my mom cooked there and then she was cashier. And then when there was nobody in the store, she would go wash the dishes or whatever it was. So it was a very, very small store. And then as our family grew and my dad kept buying houses because his vision was to make a bigger store, uh, we moved into one of those houses and usually sharing, like, like most immigrants, we shared a house. We were upstairs, my aunt was downstairs or vice versa. Across the street from Giovanni Caboto Park in Edmonton's Little Italy is Spinelli's Italian Center Shop. It's a proper-sized grocery store now and includes a cafe with sidewalk seating. But in 1959, when Frank Spinelli started out selling Italian newspapers, chocolate and pop, it was tiny. A 7-up sign hung above a marquee with the shop name and the fringe of a red, green and white awning. Now Teresa Spinelli runs the family business started by her father. He came from Salerno, Italy, as a young man to work in the Yukon silver mines. But his life soon took an unexpected turn. He unfortunately had a very, very severe accident and broke his back. And the nearest hospital was Edmonton. So they shipped him here. He spent the next year and a half in traction. They would spin him around every 24 hours. There was no welfare, there was no unemployment insurance, there was none of that stuff. So it was a very, very difficult time for my dad. But my dad was a very, very big man and a very ambitious man. And they told him that he would never be able to work again because of the severe fusion in his back. But my dad didn't listen to that. After leaving the hospital, he worked delivering gravel as a bouncer at an Alberta hotel. He started the first multicultural radio program in Alberta and the first driving school for immigrants. But it was his knowledge of life back home in Italy that gave birth to the store. So people started asking what was happening in Italy because they didn't speak any English, they didn't have TVs or radios, and so my dad started to import Italian newspapers. And although the newspapers were four or five months old, people were so happy to read in their native language what was happening in their home country. So they said, this is wonderful, but you know what? We really don't have any espresso here in Alberta. So my dad started to bring in espresso. So now people had their paper, they had their coffee. And then they said, really, we don't have any olive oil. And then we have any pasta and so on and so on. Frank Spinelli married Rina Quagliarello, a woman from Italy, and brought her to Edmonton. Teresa was born a year later. He sold newspapers, cigarettes, and he had a small deli. Really, those were the main things that he sold. They quickly outgrew that, so then they had to build a bigger store. And my dad was very proud and very happy to be in Canada, but he was very tied to his country. He was very patriotic, and he wanted to bring the best of Italy to Canada. And he really wanted to make Edmonton and the street that we're on like a little Italy. And actually, it is now Little Italy. 
Edmonton's Little Italy has changed over the years, just like the Italian Centre. The store that we're in now replaced that store, and then that store was demolished and we just kept growing bigger. There's still Italians that live in this neighbourhood, absolutely. Not as many, of course. Before, there must have been hundreds and hundreds of families. Now, maybe there's 20 families. I'm very tied to the community. I live here in the inner city, so a lot of inner city kids are at my house like from 9 in the morning till 11 o'clock at night every day. So I feel I give back that way. While this remained the centre of the community, with the shops and church, as Italian families moved out, other new immigrant families moved in. The store accommodated everyone. When immigrants from Poland, for example, or the former Yugoslavia, wanted to come to Canada, part of the migration rules at that time was you had to live in a different country. So you would leave Yugoslavia, you'd go live in Italy. If you left Poland, you'd go live in Italy. And then when those people finally immigrated here to Edmonton in Canada, they came to our store because they'd been living in Italy for the last year, and they would recognize the Italian products. But then the Polish people would say, you know what, I'm from Poland and I really love this soup that my grandma used to make. Can you bring it in? So we'd bring in the Polish soup. And then the Croatian person would say, you know, we used to have this really great water that was so great that we, we love in Croatia, so we bring that in. So now we carry a lot of products, the best known European products from Croatia, from France, from Greece. So how did you end up running the business? So family business, uh, my mom and dad started it. I had a brother, very traditional Italian family. So my brother was supposed to take over the business just because he was a boy. I didn't have any intention of taking over the store just because I knew my brother was going to take it over. Unfortunately, my brother died just before his 33rd birthday. And my mother became very depressed. And then a year later, my dad got diagnosed with cancer. So here I am. (laughs) That's basically how it happened. That was a lot to carry. What was that like to take over the business as a woman? Well, it was very difficult. You know, very male-dominated industry. My dad was like a god. Like, I mean, really. People loved him, respected him. I had some really, really big shoes to fill. Even I didn't think I could fill them. Most of the employees at that time were $8 million in sales and about 30 employees, and I think 25 of them were men. And they'd been here longer than me. And they thought of me as a little kid, right? And that a spoiled little brat really is what they thought. I literally grew up in the store, like I took my first walking steps down the pasta aisle, like that's really the truth. So it was really hard for them to take direction from me. Every day I'd have big arguments with people and had to do a lot of soul searching to figure out if this is really what I want to do. Am I doing this for my dad? You know, why am I doing this? And then I realized that I liked it, but I didn't like selling salami. I liked the people. I loved the people. And so I gained respect because I worked beside them. Some people left. And that was okay. Although at that time, I was very worried, very upset. I took it very personal. I wondered how we were going to do it without them, all those things. But now I realize that life goes on no matter what happens. And we do the best that we can with what we have. So when I took over, we were um, 30 employees, $8 million in sales. Today, 20 years later, we are going to be a $100 million company by the end of this year. And we have 652 employees. But I didn't do this. It, It was not me. Seriously. It was my team. Recipes pass from grandmothers to mothers to daughters and sons. These are celebrated traditions. But there is something perhaps just as important, if not more so, that moves from generation to generation. It's something Teresa's parents gave to her. I was at our West End store a while ago and there was this lady 
who was a customer, a longtime customer, Italian, and she had come with this guy in a wheelchair. And I asked her, who's your friend? Because he obviously wasn't Italian. And she told me she met him at the gym. She really liked him. He had never been to our store, so she bought him a coffee. She bought him pastries. So when she was leaving, I said to her, thank you for bringing him to show him, you know, a little bit of our culture. And I gave her a gift basket. I'm going to try not to cry. <laughs> so I gave her a gift basket. I said, you know, you're a wonderful person. Like, what a great person you are that you would bring a stranger, a guy you meet at the gym, into our, into our community so that he could see and have a feeling of what it's like to be here. And uh, she started to cry. And she said that my dad had fed her family because they were a family of six and they were on welfare and they had no money. And my dad had given them so much. She goes, I can't take anything from you because your dad gave us so much. And I said, no, but this is really for you just to show gratitude for how sweet you are because he would have never come into our store because he's not Italian, he's not European, he doesn't know what a cappuccino is. But she brought him here to show him that. I just was so touched by the fact that she had thought of that. So I hear stories like that, I don't want to say daily, but weekly for sure, for sure weekly. And that's really why we're so successful today was because of my dad's generosity. Not just her dad, but her mom too. My mom worked like 16 hour days, right? Because she worked at the store, then she'd come home, she'd make our clothes, she'd cook, she'd clean. And she always made time on a special occasion, my birthday, Christmas, Easter, to make jumbo cheese ravioli. You know, really, when you think about it. All of our moms, I'm sure, and us too, you know, how hard they work to give us everything that we need, you know, like, so hard. Yeah. I, I always try to remember I'm here because of my mom and dad, right? I, I inherited a very good, good, good business. Remember Megan and the Superette from part one? The first corner store that isn't really a corner store? Well, she sort of sums up the memory-making part of neighborhood groceries, bringing us full circle to where we began with nostalgic stories. The Supreta is the one place where I will park in the car and I will say to them, you both can go in and you can pick whatever treat that you want. And it's the one place that I let them go in by themselves because I mean, my daughter's nine and, and I'm parked right outside, but I know them all very well, right? And they will go in and sometimes it's Mentos and sometimes it's a new chocolate bar they haven't tried. And sometimes it's some kind of like international licorice, but it is the experience for them that that store is. And I know that they will remember that that's this little tiny store with the people that say, their names directly. Hi, Mila. Hi, Willem. And they run across the aisles, you know, even though I tell them not to run every single time. And they get their Mentos and they get their thing. And I know that they're going to remember that exact experience. To Mentos, chocolate, pasta, and memories. And the kindness of neighborhood grocers everywhere. We want to thank them for their stories and for the people in their communities who nominated them for Amplify Canada. For more information on Amplify Canada, go to pattisonmedia.com. Beginning this month, we'll feature a local independent artist in our podcasts. Our way of supporting local musicians. This is Lola Park's song, Dreamer. Lola is an Indigenous soul, folk, and pop singer-songwriter from Vancouver. You can find her music on iTunes, Bandcamp, or lolaparks.com. Dream. Get a dream with me. I'm a dreamer, cause I like to dream. 
This month, we'll feature a local independent artist in our podcasts, our way of supporting local musicians. That's Dreamer by independent artist Lola Parks. You can find more of her music at lolaparks.com or on iTunes and Bandcamp. Till Thursday. This is a presentation of Pattison Media.